All right. Well, good morning, everyone. It's nice to have all of you here as we worship our Lord together. Just want to remind you to be praying for a number of our men who are at the men's retreat this morning, finishing up the men's retreat today. Uh, And we have a special honor of commissioning a team of friendship people that are headed uh, to Honduras. And so we want to say thank you to the Lord for providing this team and commission them as they go. Before uh, we pray for them, I am going to have each of them go ahead and give their names. So I have a microphone here. If you guys would be willing to just give your names and tell the congregation who you are, that would be great. Oh, hold on. Let me see if I, I don't think it's maybe fine. I messed this up. <laughs> I got to start over. <laughs> Try it now and see what happens. My name is Carolyn Benson. No. Sorry. My name is Carolyn Benson. I'm from Woodbury. I love it. <laughs> Good friends with Linda from your church, so we're all for it. We're going. And okay. Lots of mission trips. There's a chance. There's a. My name is Linda uh, Peterson. And she's been on a lot of mission trips and a friend of of both Bruce and I for many, many, many years. Yeah. I'm Jean Bratz, and I've been to Honduras once before, and I'm super excited and sort of freaked out to go back. (laughs) And I'm excited because I brought my daughter last time, and this time I get to bring my two sons. My name's Jonathan Bratz. Uh, It's my first time going on a mission trip. I'm excited. Uh, my name's Lucas Bratz, and it's my first time as well. Hello, I'm Troy Engie, and this will be my second time to Honduras. Uh, last time I bought my oldest daughter, and now I'm bringing my youngest, and both excited to get down there and see what God has for us. Uh, my name is Kasha Engie, and this is my this would be my second mission mission. Oh my gosh, this would be my second mission trip. Good morning, I'm Gary Powell. I think I'm the elder uh, gentleman on the trip, so I'm glad all these students are coming to join us and keep us to have fun, so. I'm Andrew Halverson. This is uh, my first trip to Honduras, but uh, been doing missions for a few years now. I'm Ethan Halverson, and uh, this will be my first uh, missions trip. Uh, I got into it for my my dad. Uh, my name is Dave Taylor, and uh, super excited to go with this team, uh, multi-generation here, uh, of friendship brothers and sisters. This will be my 28th mission trip out of the country, and uh, just really excited to see what God has in store for us. So pray for us to have open hearts, to receive what God gives us, to share with the people that we come across. As the mic comes back, if it could stop at Troy for a second. Troy. Uh, would you tell us uh, just a little bit about what you're going to be doing? Yeah, we'll be El, El Sembrador is the uh, uh, school in uh, Honduras that's originally started, a Christian school, vocational type of school for young men. Uh, it's a boarding school. It's grown to a K through 12. Um, you know, although the foundations are uh, biblical principles, there are uh, students and staff that are unsaved, don't know the Lord, so we'll be praying that God directs us to who he needs to direct us to. And aside from that, we'll be doing some odd jobs, roof repair, maybe concrete work, uh, whatever they need to need us to do, free them up. Yeah. Uh, we're we're going to pray for them and commission them. And as a sign of your participation in the commission, would you stand with me? 
Let's pray together. Father, we want to give you thanks for this team. We thank you for the movement in each individual's heart in order to bring them to the place where they said yes to you and yes to this mission work that you want to do in Honduras. We're thankful for the provision that you have made for this team to go, and we recognize that those good things have come from you. Lord, as they go, we want to pray that you would be with them, that you would be in the details of their travel, that you would be bringing them safety as they travel and as they're there. Lord, that you'd be working through the things that they say and the things that they do in order to bring people into relationship with Jesus Christ. We pray that as that gospel is presented, it would be presented to people whose hearts and minds you're at work in right now before the team leaves, preparing them for what you're going to speak and what you're going to say. We pray that this team would be helpful to those who are down there so that they can more readily share the gospel and build relationships in ways that perhaps they haven't had that opportunity before. And Lord, as our team does work, again, we ask for you to be with them, that those things that get built, those things that get made, would be useful for your ministry, would be useful for discipleship in the years to come. Lord, we ask for your Holy Spirit's blessing upon this team. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you, friends. You may be seated. This morning, as we uh, spend some time in the Word together, uh, the verses that we're going to be looking at are not going to come up on the screen, and so you may want to make sure that you turn in your Bible to Exodus chapter 12. That's where we're going to be today. Or if you have a device, turn to Exodus chapter 12. If you don't have anything, there's Bibles in the back that you can grab or just look on with the person next to you as we walk through Exodus chapter 12 today, which is a part of our sermon series called Exodus, the Deliverer. We started back in Exodus chapter 1, and today we are in Exodus chapter 12. And what we have seen is that God called Moses and Aaron to go before Pharaoh and say, Yahweh, the Lord, wants you to let his people go. You have enslaved them. You have been torturing them. And God says, I want you to let my people go so that they can go and worship me. Egypt and Pharaoh's response to this was, no way. As a matter of fact, we're going to increase Israel's workload and increase their beatings to show Israel belongs to us. There, 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 there are property here in Egypt. And so God begins to bring plagues upon the nation of Egypt in order to establish his authority. One plague after another comes upon Egypt, and, and Egypt has this opportunity to repent after each time one of these plagues comes to acknowledge God, to let his people go, and they won't. They don't. Each one of these plagues establishes God's authority over Pharaoh, over Egypt, and over the gods of Egypt. As we saw last week, the gods of Egypt were tightly connected with creation, and so God is establishing his authority over the Egyptian God of the sun and the Egyptian God of the crops and the Egyptian spirits of the Nile. Say, no, 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 I'm the one who's in control of all of these things with these plagues. But Pharaoh and the Egyptians, they don't acknowledge God's authority. 
They rebel against him. They continue to enslave Israel. And so we come to the final plague. In Exodus chapter 12, we see the death of the firstborn in Egypt. All of these plagues have been giving Egypt an opportunity to acknowledge God's authority, to repent, to be obedient to him. They have refused, but this plague will finally be what gets Israel released from their captivity. As we walk through Exodus chapter 12, we're reminded of Exodus chapter 4, where God said to Moses, Israel, they're my special people. They are my firstborn son." And Egypt will not release them until I take Egypt's firstborn sons. And that's what we're going to see in Exodus chapter 12. As we look at that, we're also going to see God establish a time of remembrance for his people. This this ceremony of remembrance is referred to as Passover. And they're going to celebrate the first Passover in Exodus 12... And then that is to be established so that they they will go ahead and remember God through the celebration of Passover from then on. And as we see this time of remembrance, it's important for us to understand what the Bible means by remember or remembrance. When the Bible talks about remembrance, it means something more than recalling something that you have forgotten. Uh, With each passing year... I am getting better and better at forgetting people's names. Am I alone in that, right? In my 20s, you heard a name, it was yours, you had it forever. At whatever age I'm at now, I hear a name, I hear it again, I hear it again. I see that person and I go, what's their name, what's their name, what's their name? And then like three and a half, four hours later, it'll pop into my head. Usually I'm at the dinner table with my wife and I just yell it out. She has no context. She thinks I'm under some sort of attack or something. What is going on here at our dinner table? When, When the Bible talks about remembering or remembrance, it means something more than to recall something that you have forgotten. As a matter of fact, when the Bible talks about remembrance, it's specifically talking about things that you clearly remember bringing them to the forefront of your mind so that they're the focus of your mind and your thinking in a way that impacts your perspective and changes the way you live. It's not about remembering something you forgot. As a matter of fact, when we take the Lord's Supper later today, we do this in remembrance of Him. Well, most of you wouldn't need to take the elements again over the course of your life to remember that Jesus died for you. That's, that's in here, right? When we remember Jesus, we don't recall something we've forgotten. No, we take something we already know, we bring it to the forefront of our mind, and we focus on it, and we concentrate on it in a way that changes our perspective and the way that we're living. And the Passover is an Old Testament celebration of remembrance that God establishes in Exodus chapter 12 so that the people will bring their deliverer and his deliverance their Redeemer and His redemption, their Savior and His salvation to the forefront of their minds again and again and again so that it changes their perspective and the way that they're living. Now, as we look at the Passover today in Exodus chapter 12 and the things that God called His people to remember, we're going to see there are parallels to things that we should be remembering about Jesus our Savior and His salvation. So I want to walk through Exodus chapter 12 and let's look at some of those things that were important for Israel to remember 
And we're going to talk about them in light of what God has called us to be remembering regularly in our lives when we're spending time daily with him in prayer or in the word. We, we are remembering him, calling him to the forefront of our minds. Even when we pause before meal times in order to pray, what is that? Imparted is a time of remembrance where we're saying, Lord, you, you're on the forefront of our minds. We're focused on you. We do it when we come here together as a community. When we sing these songs, it's to bring the Lord to the forefront of our mind and remember his greatness and what he has done. When we walk through the word, especially when we go to this table, we do this in remembrance to bring him to the forefront of our minds. Let's look at some of the things that Israel was called to remember and, rem and they remind us of what we also need to remember. First, Remember your life revolves around God's redemption. Remember your life revolves around God's redemption. Uh, verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12 say this, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. God tells Moses and Aaron, My redemption of my people is such a big deal. We're starting the calendar here. Right? Everything is going to be arranged around this. And so we are starting over. Here's the first month. And I want you to understand this is such a big deal. Everything revolves around your redemption. We're going to arrange the whole calendar around it. And in that same way, God calls us to constantly remember everything in our life revolves around Jesus and our redemption. Uh, in Mark chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus says, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus wants us to understand everything in your life. It's to revolve around me and your salvation. It's the centerpiece of your life. There are a lot of things in my life and the busyness of the days that want to creep in and push Jesus and his salvation further back in my mind. Uh, no one, well, very few people take Jesus and just throw Jesus and his salvation out of their mind. That's not the way it happens. If Jesus isn't at the forefront of our mind, it's because things creep in and slowly, bit by bit, push him further and further back. And through these times of remembrance, we say, nope, nope, Jesus goes back to the forefront of our mind where we focus on him and pay attention to him because all of our life revolves around him. So we remember your life revolves around God's redemption. Right? Take a moment to remember that. Second, we remember the sacrifice of the Lamb. Verses 3 through 6. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. A male, a year old, you shall, make it, shall take it from the sheep or the goats. And you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month, when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. The lamb was selected on the 10th day of the month. It, it was taken away from the rest of the flock, and it was treated as special. For those four days until the 14th, it dwelt with the family. The kids got to play with that lamb. 
spend time with that lamb. And then on the 14th of the month, the father would take the lamb out and the blood of the lamb was mixed with its pure white wool. And the kids would say, Dad, why? Dad would explain to those kids how that lamb's sacrifice was a substitute in Egypt for the firstborn. A lesson that would be ingrained deeply by what they were experiencing and witnessing. That the lamb served as a substitute so that God's people could live. Throughout the Bible, lambs serve as a substitute to save people. In Genesis chapter 22, it is a ram caught in a thicket that is a substitute for Isaac. In Exodus 12, we see here in the Passover that a lamb is serving as a substitute for each household. Then in the Levitical law, on the Day of Atonement, a lamb serves as a sacrifice for the whole nation. You can see the expansion that is taking place of the substitution. In Genesis 22, the lamb substitutes for a person. In Exodus 12, it substitutes for a household. In the Levitical law, it substitutes for the whole nation of Israel. And then there is that day when John the Baptist is standing on the shores of the Sea of Galilee and he declares, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world just continues that expansion. All of these physically spotless lambs looked forward to that morally spotless lamb who would give his life for his people because he loved them deeply. He would be their substitute. And so we remember, actively draw to the forefront of our minds the sacrifice of the lamb. Very closely related to that, we also remember the shed blood. Exodus 12, 7 says this, Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. Now, jump down the page with me to verses 21 through 24. It says, Then Moses called all the elders of Israel and said to them, Go and select lambs for yourselves according to your clans, and kill the Passover lamb. Take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin and touch the lentil and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the door of the house until the morning, for the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians. And when he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your houses to strike you. Why is blood such a big deal in the Bible? It's because in the, in the scriptures, blood represents life. It isn't that blood is magical in some way. Blood represents life. And in that same way, what does the shedding of blood represent? Right? The shedding of blood represents death. So in Genesis chapter 9, when God says to Noah, whoever sheds a man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, he's not talking about giving each other paper cuts. Not, not a few drops of blood that might sprinkle out. No, he's talking about killing other people because shed blood represents death. And that's what we see in Exodus chapter 12. This isn't just about blood. It is about the fact that there has been a life given here. So that when the destroyer comes, 
in order to take those firstborn, he recognizes by the blood that is on the doorposts. And the people inside recognize by the blood that is on the doorposts that in faith these people are trusting in a substitutionary death. They're trusting that something else has died in the place of that firstborn. Right? Does that sound gospel-like? That they needed to, in faith, trust in the application of the blood in order to receive salvation? And so we want to be a people who, like the Israelites, are regularly calling to the forefront of our minds in remembrance the shed blood. That Jesus was that ultimate substitute. Every time we say something like, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins, we recognize the shedding of blood represents death. Right? Without a substitute life, there is no forgiveness of sins. And the only one who could take away the sins of the world is the infinite God-man Jesus Christ who shed his blood on our behalf. And so we remember the shed blood. We remember Jesus' deep love for us, the Father's deep love for us, that he would send his son to be that sacrifice. Right? We remember the shed blood. Take a moment to remember the shed blood. We also want to remember the bitterness of the former life. If you look at verse 8, it says, They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire, with unleavened bread and bitter herbs they shall eat it. As they eat the sacrificial lamb, there's two other dishes that are added to the dinner table that night. The first dish is bitter herbs. Oh, good. Yay, bitter herbs. The bitter herbs, or morar, is meant to represent the bitterness of the life that they experienced before their redemption. The bitterness of life in Egypt before Jesus, before God saved them. In the same way, we come before the Lord and we are to regularly remember the bitterness of life before salvation. Maybe we remember it from our own experience. Maybe we think about it from what we have seen in other people's lives. And we certainly come to the scriptures in order to understand life before salvation is a life without hope, without a future. It's a life separated from God. As we live that life, it's a life filled with worry and anxiety and chasing after the things of the world and discouragement and competition with other people and on and on we could go. And so we regularly remember the bitterness of the former life, pre-salvation life. We remember what that is like and we never want to go back to that. The other element that was on the table, one is the bitter herbs. The other element that was on the table reminds us of the priority of our salvation. To remember, to call to the forefront of our minds the priority of our salvation. What was the other element that appeared on the table? Yeah, that's right. It was the unleavened bread. Why unleavened? Well, verses 9 through 11 gives us a clue about that, right? So look at verses 9 through 11. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted, its head with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, 
and your staff in your hand, and you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. Right? Well, why did it have to be unleavened bread? Because there was no time for it to rise. God says, belt fastened, sandal strapped, staff in hand. you got to be ready to go. Tonight is the night of your redemption, and that is your focus. You don't have time to focus on your wants. You don't have time to focus on any comforts. You, you may think, oh, I'd just like to kick back and hang out and relax and just spend some time here tonight. No, God says, no, get ready because my salvation is your priority. Not your comforts, not your wants, my salvation is your priority. And we want to regularly remember this, the priority of Jesus' salvation. No comforts or personal wants are going to get in the way of that being the priority of our lives. Jesus says, if your eye causes you to sin, do what? Gouge it out. If your hand causes you to sin, do what? Cut it off. Because there's nothing more important than your salvation. It's the absolute priority. And for us, there's nothing, no comforts, no wants, that is going to get in the way of our faith, of our continuing to walk with Christ, becoming like Him, living with Him forever. Right? We want to remember the priority of our salvation. As we continue on through the passage we also want to remember God's righteous punishment. Verses 12 and 13, For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast, and on all the gods of Egypt I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to, or to destroy you. When I strike the land of Egypt. There are, there are times in the Bible when there is a judgment upon the earth that is meant to be a reminder of the great righteous judgment that is to come. And so we think about the flood. We think about Sodom and Gomorrah. We think about the death of the firstborn in Egypt. They are little foretastes of the great judgment that God said is to come. And God carries out this judgment upon the Egyptians. You, you notice they're still trusting in their gods instead of in the one true God who has shown his authority and his superiority through these first nine plagues. God says, all right, I need to show up the gods of Egypt one more time here. And he does, if you look down at verse 29, at midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants, and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up! Go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. Pharaoh and the Egyptians rejected God's authority through the first nine plagues. God gave them one at a time, giving them opportunity after opportunity to repent Opportunity after opportunity to be obedient to his call, they refused, and now judgment has come upon them. 
And as I said, these earthly judgments that we see from time to time in the scripture are always meant to be a small foretaste of the great judgment that God says is to come. Jesus promises, uh, warns would be a better word, people over and over again about this great judgment that will come one day. So that in Matthew 25, he says that God is going to take a particular group of people who have ignored Jesus, ignored the gospel, still stand in their sins, and he will say to them, depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Jesus warns us again and again of God's righteous judgment for those who are still in their sins. As his followers, we want to regularly remember that righteous punishment because it is the only thing that brings the full appreciation of the next item of remembrance, and that is God's great mercy. It's only when we see fully God's punishment and righteousness that we recognize God's great mercy that he has shown to us. Back to verse 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Were the people of Israel saved because they were without sin? Certainly not. What what have we seen over the course of our looking at Exodus? We have seen that when Moses and Aaron came and declared things before Pharaoh and things got hard, the people of Israel immediately abandoned Moses and Aaron and ran to Pharaoh instead to say, can you help us out here? They didn't run to their God for provision. They ran to Pharaoh for provision instead. We've seen Moses lie to his father-in-law, not bring his children into the covenant, lack faith when God called him. In the next few chapters, we're going to see the people of Israel grumble and complain and whine and rebel over and over again. And the book of Joshua tells us that while they were in Egypt, they were worshiping idols. Were the people of Israel spared here because they were sinless? Because they were good enough? Absolutely not. They were were spared because of God's great mercy. They were spared because God is merciful. He offered them a pathway to mercy if they would apply the blood of the sacrifice to their lives and to their households. In the same way, Jesus offers a pathway to mercy if we will apply the blood of the Lamb to our lives. Romans chapter 5 verse 9 says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. We need to regularly be remembering God's great mercy. This isn't in any way about me being good enough. It's not about me being more righteous than other people. It's not about the fact that I'm special because I'm just spectacular in some way. Right? None of that is true, and none of that is the basis of our salvation. It's all based on his great mercy that he has chosen to show. And so we give him praise because it's all about him. We remember God's great mercy. We also want to remember regularly that God saved us to sanctify us. Right? God saved you in order to make you holy. After God gives these instructions about the Passover... He immediately shifts and transitions in verses 14 through 20 and introduces a festival, a feast, called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
We read about that festival of unleavened bread in verses 14 through 20. Let me read this, and you guys see how many times the word leaven or unleaven is used as you read it in your Bibles. This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast of the Lord throughout your generations. As a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall hold a holy assembly, and on the seventh day a holy assembly. No work shall be done on those days. But when everyone needs to eat, I'm sorry, but when everyone needs to eat, that alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread. For on this very day I brought you your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day, therefore your generations, as a statute forever. In the first month from the fourteenth day of the month at the evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at the evening. For seven days no leaven is to be found in your houses. If anyone eats what is leavened, that person will be cut off from the congregation of Israel. Whether he is a sojourner or a native of the land, you shall eat nothing leavened in all your dwelling places. You shall eat unleavened bread. Right, do you get the idea? No leaven. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of Unleavened Bread, it started with Passover and it went for the next week. And not only were you not supposed to eat leaven or yeast, you weren't even supposed to have any in the house. You were to get rid of it all. Why? Because in the scriptures, leaven represents sin. So that in the Levitical law, when they brought their grain offerings before the Lord, there was to be no leaven in it so that it would be considered to be a pure offering before the Lord. When Jesus talks about the Pharisees, he warns his disciples about the leaven of the Pharisees, their sinful teachings and sinful ways of life, because leaven and yeast represent sin in the Scripture. We know it represents sin here because of what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 6 through 8. In the context of that passage, Paul is trying to help people understand that they have unrepentant sin in the body unrepentant sin that they're not doing anything about. And he's like, what, what are you guys doing? Remove that unrepentant sin from your body. He says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven, hmm, leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Right? What is Paul using here? He's using Passover and the week after that festival of unleavened bread as an illustration. And he's saying, just as the Israelites were saved on Passover so that they could be holy feast of unleavened bread... So you have been saved by the Passover lamb, Christ, so that you can be holy. So remove this unholiness from you, this intentional sin that, where there is no repentance. We want to regularly call to the forefront of our minds that God has saved us for the purpose of making us holy. 
He saved us to sanctify us. Romans 8.29 says, The purpose of God's salvation in our life is that we would be made like Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 2 says, The purpose for our salvation is that we would be a holy priesthood before the Lord. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says, The purpose of your salvation by grace through faith is so that you will do the good works which were prepared for you beforehand. Again and again, the scripture wants us to understand you have been saved for the purpose of worshiping God and being holy. And God wants us to regularly bring that before our minds. It's so easy for me in the flesh to slip into an understanding of my salvation that is all about me and my wants. God says, no, no, regularly be bringing before the forefront of your mind the fact that your salvation is so that you will worship me with your whole heart and be holy before me. God has saved you to sanctify you. The Passover brings about the feast of unleavened bread. We also want to remember regularly God's rich blessings that are a part of his salvation. If you jump down the page to verses 33 through 36, we read that as Israel's on their way out, the Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead so the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls uh, being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians." Part of what the Israelites were to remember every time they celebrated the Passover was the amazing blessings that God brought upon them as a part of this salvation. That as they were on their way out the door, they asked the Egyptians, hey, yeah, we'll go ahead and leave your country, but can you give us gold and silver and clothing? And the Egyptians forked it over and said, yes, please, just get out. Right? Take all of this plunder. Now, this is a unique blessing for Israel in this particular time. But as they were to remember these blessings of their salvation, so we are to regularly remember the blessings of our salvation. One of the primary ways we do this is through what the Bible calls thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is us intentionally bringing to the forefront of our minds the blessings that God has given to us and giving him thanks for those blessings. 1 Thessalonians 5 says that we are to give thanks in all circumstances because the blessings of our salvation are so great, they overwhelm any circumstances that we are in. The blessings of our salvation, we want to regularly be bringing them to the forefront of our mind so that we recognize, God, we give you thanks because according to Ephesians 1, you have given us every spiritual blessing in Christ Jesus. We give you thanks because according to Galatians 5, you have given us these amazing fruit that can be ours in any circumstance through the power of your Holy Spirit. We want to give you praise because according to Hebrews 10 or 1 Peter 2, you have made us a part of a body that is a constant encouragement as we walk through life. We want to give you thanks, God, because no matter what is going on in our life, we look forward to that 1 Peter 1 reality of an amazing inheritance that is ours in heaven because of you. 
And so we are recalling these blessings to the forefront of our mind. Philippians chapter 4 says that if we are experiencing anxiety, worry in our lives, the primary way we battle that is through prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Thanksgiving is an essential part of that because it's with thanksgiving that we're bringing to the forefront of our minds those primary blessings of God's salvation in our lives, which brings other things into perspective and reminds us of his constant provision. And so we are a people of thanksgiving, regularly remembering God's rich blessings in our life. Right? Take a moment and just remember, bring to the forefront the rich blessings of God's salvation. We also, as we walk through here, want to be a people of remembrance, that the remembrance that we observe is for all God's family. The, the remembrance that we observe together, that's for every one of God's children. Look at verses 43 through 49 with me. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, this is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is brought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised, then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land, but no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. What is God saying in those verses? He's saying that this ordinance of remembrance is for every person who belongs to the covenant community of God. It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your status. It doesn't matter your nation of origin. If you have come and you have committed yourself to Yahweh, this ordinance of remembrance is for you. He says, particularly if you have undergone the outward symbol of being a part of that covenant community. Right? He, sa he says, it's great that your heart is devoted to me, but you must undergo the outward symbol of being a part of the covenant community. And then you participate in this ordinance of remembrance. The same is true with our ordinance of remembrance. It is for every person who is a part of God's family and God's community. It, it doesn't matter nationality, background, status. None of that matters when we come before the table. It is for every person who is a part of God's family. It is absolutely best taken when we have gone through the outward symbol of being a part of God's covenant community, that symbol of baptism. Just as the Israelites were to undergo that outward symbol of being a part of God's community, circumcision, and then they could participate in the ordinance of remembrance, so it is best if we go through that outward symbol of being a part of the covenant community, baptism, and then we participate in God's ordinance of remembrance. Just as the Israelites, right after their birth, were brought into the covenant community through circumcision, so in the New Testament, God's people, right after their new birth, 
Right? Their, their new birth in Christ are brought into the covenant community through baptism and then begin to participate in the ordinances of remembrance of Jesus Christ. Every person who is a part of that covenant community and has undergone those outward symbol of being a part of that community is to be a part of this remembrance. What point are we on? Ten. What? Right, what kind of insanity is this? All right, 11. This is the last one, I promise. Remember to teach your children about God's redemption. If we can jump back into the middle of the passage, some verses that I skipped over. You shall observe this right as a statute for you and for your sons forever. And when you come to the land that the Lord will give you, as he has promised, he shall keep this service. And when your children say to you, what do you mean by this service? You shall say, it is the sacrifice of the Lord's Passover. For he passed over the houses of the people of Israel in Egypt when he struck the Egyptians, but spared our houses. And the people bowed their heads and worshipped. This time of remembrance was instituted in part to teach the next generations about God's salvation and redemption. Parents have been given the privilege and responsibility by God to disciple the children that are in their home. We are called by Jesus to make disciples. And if we are parents, that certainly includes the making of disciples within our own homes. Jesus says we're to make disciples and we are to baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And so we are teaching and training our kids so that they will make that commitment to Jesus Christ and follow after him. But we're, we're not just to seek to have them make that covenant commitment to Christ. We also, what, what's the next line? Are to teach them to obey all that I have commanded. Isn't that what Christ says next? And so Jesus calls us as parents to be those who bring our children up in the fear and admonition of the Lord, teaching them all that God has given to us to obey all that he has commanded. The church is a blessing and benefit as we raise our kids in that. I know that my children, who are now adults, greatly benefit from the blessing of coming up in a community of believers. But I also want to remind us that as parents, this is primarily a task given to us to disciple our children. That, that this, my children are primarily my responsibility for discipleship. And the church is a help in that. But that I'm the one who is to make disciples in my home. And we want to constantly be remembering that and using each thing that comes up as they used Passover in order to be discipling our children and teaching them about God's redemption. It is significant that Jesus' death took place around the time of the Passover celebration. The day that Jesus made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem was the day that each family selected their lamb that would be sacrificed on the Passover. Jesus was that selected lamb 
as Jesus celebrates the Passover that evening with his disciples, he says, this is my body. This is my blood. And whether they understood what he was saying or not around that Passover celebration, what he was telling them is, I am that lamb. That lamb that you have sacrificed as a part of this celebration year after year, that shed blood that has been put on the doorposts, I am that flesh. I am that blood of the Passover lamb. I am the true and great Passover lamb who will bring salvation. As Jesus hung upon the cross, each family just before that, all, all over the city, had had the fathers select a lamb. They had sacrificed that lamb. And each father had spoken the words, God has provided a lamb for us. Jesus hung on the cross as that great sacrificial lamb, blood flowing out of his hands and his side, he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And we celebrate that together. As the people of Israel celebrated the Passover, we come week in and week out, and we celebrate Christ, our Passover Lamb, who is our great substitute.